A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. American history is quite full of violence. We will not stand down! The intensity of aggression naturally varies from time to time, but after a certain intensity of frustration is passed, and certain certain threshold has gone beyond, aggression turns into turmoil and even to major violence. In November 1963, a Columbia University professor called Richard Hofstadter gave a lecture at the University of Oxford that 60 years later is still a go-to reference point for anyone trying to understand the American past and present. The lecture, published in Harper's the following year with some timely updates, was called The Paranoid Style in American History. Hofstadter was one of the great essayists of the mid-20th century, a vigorous prose stylist and a coiner of telling phrases. He was a tenured professor at an elite university, but he had a rare knack for capturing a big idea, for seeming to unlock complexity. And his favourite subject by far was what made the United States distinctive, what forces and underlying assumptions explained why it was as it was. Maybe the time he spent in England as a visiting professor at Cambridge in 1958-9, as well as on his 1963 visit, gave him something of an outsider's perspective on the peculiarities of his own country. And certainly his reading of social theorists and psychologists led him to that provocative word, paranoia. No other word, Hofstadter wrote, adequately evokes the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness and conspiratorial fantasy that I have in mind. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Polls are showing that the majority of Americans now believe that the 2020 election was wrought with fraud. Get out of here, you old bag of bones! American politics, Hofstadter claimed, had served again and again as an arena for uncommonly angry minds. His key idea, perhaps, was that the paranoid style explained how individual feelings of grievance and victimhood could be translated into a story about the nation. Even its author, who had high ambitions for the wider impact of his scholarship, can hardly have predicted how this idea would run and run. And it's been especially cited since the rise of Donald Trump. Investigations of Trump voters by the so-called mainstream media frequently reference this idea that there's a deep, paranoid streak in American politics. It explains the seeming irrationality of MAGA world to liberals. So, who was Richard Hofstadter? How did he come to develop his idea that American politics was characterised by a paranoid style? And to what extent does his famous phrase enhance or inhibit our understanding of modern American politics? Well, to discuss these questions, I'm joined by Nick Witham from University College London, 
the author of Popularising the Past, a brilliant new study of Cold War-era historians who shaped an understanding of American history far beyond the groves of academia. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on The Last Best Hope. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nick, let's start with Richard Hofstetter himself. Tell us a little bit about him and how he came to be the mid-century public intellectual that he was by the time he gave this lecture here at Oxford in 1963. Richard Hofstadter was a was a fascinating um, historian and, and, and probably, if not the leading historian of his generation, then, then, then one of the two or three most important. He was born in 1916 in, in Buffalo, in upstate New York, and he died in 1970, aged, aged 54, so very early, of, of leukaemia in, in, in New York City. And whilst he travelled the world widely and, of course, spent considerable time in, in, in Britain, in both Oxford and Cambridge and, and, in, and in London, he was really a, a New York intellectual of a, of a kind of classic sort. And so much of his life and his thought was rooted in Manhattan um, because he taught at Columbia University uh, in New York City for almost all of his career. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in, in, in 1956 for his third book, The Age of Reform. Um, and as you mentioned, he, he, he wrote with great regularity for popular magazines and, and, and newspapers. He was an incredibly good communicator, um, especially with the written word. He had this imagination of his readers as intelligent and inquisitive about the past. He thought that they were educated enough to handle complexity, well-read enough to appreciate irony. And even from the PhD research that he did that became his first book on social Darwinism in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He never thought of himself as an archive rat who was hunting down the, the latest unseen document in dusty, dusty libraries. He always wanted to see the big picture. He was always more interested yeah. in synthesising the views of other historians. He was a great phrase maker, wasn't he, Nick? I mean, I read Hofstadter's essays at a formative age I suppose when I was an undergraduate and they they still pop into my head and I use them in lectures without planning to do so I mean there's one that I often end up citing to my students to get them to think about things which is Hofstadter once wrote it has been America's fate not to have ideologies but to be one that's a brilliant starting point for a conversation with it. It's been America's fate not to have ideologies and not to have communism, socialism. Obviously, America has actually had those things, but, you know, he's making a big point here. It's been America's fate not to have those ideologies, but itself to be one. America is an ideology. And he just captures that idea, which is highly debatable, but really powerful and important one. And he's just brilliant at that, isn't he? He was. And that's absolutely right. And that speaks to another one of his obsessions, which was high quality writing. He was very, very centrally concerned with himself as a literary stylist. He was inspired as much by novelists like F. Scott Fitzgerald and essayists like the literary critic Edmund Wilson than he was by other professional historians. And I think mm. that that made a big difference um, to the way that, that he thought about himself. And You say in your book, Nick, that he was a bit snobbish, really, about other academic historians. That's the word you use. He kind of slightly looked down on them for not being able to write properly and not really trying, not taking it seriously. He was a man of the of the liberal left throughout his life, but he was definitely also a snob. In a letter to his friend Alfred Kazin in the 1940s, when he was writing his book, uh, The American Political Tradition, he wrote that he saw himself as part of the genus literarius, not part of the genus historicus. He was a writer who happened to be writing about history, but he was first and foremost, he wanted to identify as a writer. And I think you also quote him in your book, Nick, as he was slightly scared of writers and critics, whereas he clearly wasn't scared of other historians. 
Yes, that's definitely true. Although I don't think he had any reason to be scared of other writers, because as, as you've said, he just had a wonderful, wonderful way with words. And, you know, the, the, the witty quotations, definitely, but also the ability, as with the Paranoid Style essay, but there are, there are others in his oeuvre too, uh, to weave together centuries of American history to make a series of really serious, meaty interventions in American politics in the present as well. So let's talk about his politics, Nick. So you said he was a man of the liberal left. He'd grown up, obviously, in the, in the Great Depression and the Second World War, and he'd very briefly been a member of the Communist Party of the United States, very briefly. But he'd spent a lot of time with radical leftists and, and, and communists when he was a young man. How important was that early radicalism and how far had he moved beyond it by the time that he gave this paranoid style lecture in 1963? Like so many people of his generation and his lived experience, he was outraged by the many injustices that he witnessed in the United States during his during his youth. You know, he came of age um, during the Great Depression with all of the, um, you know, the economic catastrophe that that wreaked in the United States and around the world. Early in his career, as he was finishing his PhD, he travelled around the south of the United States with his, with his first wife, Felice Suados, and, and saw the, the racial inequality. And so like so many people who were young and outraged by those things, he found himself in the orbit, shall we say, of the Communist Party of the United States. And, and, and you're right, he was briefly a member, but I think that's much less significant than the fact that for, for, a, for a significant period of time in, in the 1940s, um, his friends and and his family formed a radical milieu around him that was shaped by these experiences, also shaped by the massive world political events that were going on at the time, right? The rise of Nazism, the twists and turns of internal and um, foreign politics in the USSR, the romanticism and the catastrophe of the Spanish Civil War. These were all events that loomed large on the horizon of these of these thinkers. So yes, he was he was a man of the of the radical left in the 1940s. But I think he was, you know, he was always looking at party politics slightly askance from a, from an angle. Um, and during the course of the 1950s and 1960s, he began to more firmly identify with the American liberal re, liberal tradition. Um, but again, from that kind of the, the, the standpoint of a sceptical observer prone to irony rather than party political affiliation. What he definitely doesn't do, and I think this is worth pointing out in terms of the broader intellectual history of the period, he doesn't become a neoconservative like famous intellectuals like Irving Kristol or Norman Poderitz, um, who, who start on the radical left and, and, and by the mm. 1960s and 1970s are very firmly on the, on the right. He remains a liberal, but at the end of his life, and you, you know, you've got to remember he died early, age 54, but at the end of his life, he was an antagonist of the 1960s student new left on the campus at Columbia University. And that he shared with his liberal contemporaries, people like the literary critic Lionel Trilling, the sociologist Daniel Bell, um, the political theorist Irving Howe. So by the early 1960s, he had moved away from the hard radicalism of his youth. And he saw by the 1960s on the one hand of course he this is the absolute height of the cold war and deep anxiety about the prospect of nuclear armageddon on the other hand it's also a time of very visible rising right-wing movements including in the united states and this brings us into this paranoid style lecture i mean he he gave it the night before JFK was assassinated. 
When he published it in Harper's Magazine, the immediate context was the 1964 presidential election in which Lyndon Johnson, C. Kennedy's uh, vice president, successor as president, won in a landslide, defeating Barry Goldwater, who was seen at the time as being extremely right-wing, dangerous figure, and he voted against the Civil Rights Act, and he was beginning the process of gathering the support of white conservatives in the South towards the Republican Party, drawing them away from their historical allegiance to the Democratic Party. The 1964 election, in other words, is often seen as being one of those kind of formative moments when people are telling the story of the rise of the modern right and the rise of Trump. They often look back to this Goldwater 1964 moment. And that was the context in which Hofstadter was worrying about the paranoid style. So let's talk a little bit more about the lecture and what his what he was trying to say in it. Where did this idea come from, Nick? Why was he talking about paranoia? Who was he talking to? So why was he talking about paranoia is, is a really important question. And I think we might usefully go back to a, a comment made in 1950 by one of Hofstadter's uh, Columbia University colleagues, uh, Lionel Trilling, in a, in a very famous best-selling book called The Liberal Imagination, where he, he essentially, um, albeit quite briefly, argued that the United States didn't have a conservative political tradition worth speaking of. And that really, if you wanted to understand the United States, you had to understand the liberal tradition. And you know he made that comment in 1950, but by 1964, certainly, and really by the, the, the mid to late 1950s, it was clear to, to Trilling, to Hofstadter, to many others, that there was an American right that was becoming um, a significant political force and that they needed to try and understand that. So this is where I think the idea of the paranoid style begins to come into Hofstadter's thinking. And he's part of a, of a generation of intellectuals who are trying to understand the rise in, in conservatism, whether it's anti-communist conservatism uh, in response to the Cold War and McCarthyism, uh, whether it's white supremacist conservatism um, looking to uh, push back against the desegregation um, that has been begun in, in the south of the United States in the mid-1950s with significant Supreme Court decisions like Brown versus Board of Education and others. He's really trying to explain what it is within American politics that, that makes sense of the emergence of that type of right wing when up until five or 10, 15 years previously, right-thinking American intellectuals didn't think that that type of right-wing had existed and was worth taking seriously. When you say right-thinking intellectuals, you, of course, mean people who thought in the correct way by Hofstadter's judgment. Absolutely, judgment. yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he, I mean, very uh, right at the top of his lecture, he, he quotes McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, who's famous, notorious for his hysterical anti-communism, and he quotes him as saying, uh, how can we account, this is McCarthy speaking as quoted by Hofstadter, how can we account for our present situation unless we believe that men high in this government are concerting to deliver us the disaster? And so Hofstadter cites that line from McCarthy as as kind of pure evidence of the paranoid style that he's identifying. The way the essay works, you know, it starts with McCarthy, then it goes back, way back in American history to the 1790s, and then brings us forward and ends with McCarthy and with Goldwater. And so it's very clear what he's what he's trying to do in, in, in terms of getting the past to speak to the present. He's arguing that American history is periodically characterised by what he describes as uncommonly angry minds, that the paranoid style is 
neither of the left nor the right, he argues, but is characterized by heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, conspiratorial fantasy. Though I think it's also important to recognize that he really is most interested in the essay in in the conspiracies and the paranoid style of the right and not of the and not of the left. Mm. And as you've already said, he takes us through a series of case studies in the 1790s, the anti-Masonic movement in the United States that saw Freemasonry as a in Hofstadter's words, a vast, insidious, preternaturally effective international conspiratorial network. Then in the 1850s, the rise of anti-Catholicism, which saw the insidious uh, influence of, of, of the Pope in the United States as a plot against American values. And in, in one witty aside, he calls anti-Catholicism the pornography of American Puritanism. Yes. Yes, that's another thing I quote in my lectures. <laughs> uh, and then he brings us he brings us up to date to the 1950s, where he talks about McCarthyite anti-communism, like you've said. And, and and the thing that he sees as shifting in the 1950s is that where their predecessors saw conspiracy as coming directly from abroad, um, the modern right saw it as a as a betrayal at home. You know, yes, it was very often motivated mm. by an obsession with communism, which was seen as a, a foreign ideology. But they perceived that Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, you know, presidents crossing party lines were agents of subversion. So were diplomats. So were judges. So were yeah. school teachers. The anti-Catholic uh, movement, for example, of the 19th century, that had had as its clear target the Pope in Rome. And the the idea was these insidious priests were manipulating and undermining the capacity for republicanism within the United States. But it was essentially an external threat that was very analogous to the threat of monarchism. But the difference in the 20th century, as Hofstadter sees it, is that the enemy is within. And for McCarthy, therefore, for example, even though he's his that ultimately it's in the context of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, as you would think, a clear example of an external threat. In fact, McCarthy's whole focus is on reds under the bed. Exactly. And I think the, the other fundamental difference that builds on that one is the fact that um, early in the essay, he says that pr- predominantly the paranoid style has been a, a minority form of politics. And in that sense, he compares what's gone on in the going on in the United States and what's gone on in, in history to... Um, to Germany, where he says, well, actually, in 1930s Germany, the paranoid style became the, the majority, the dominant form of, of, of politics. Um, but I think he's worried, especially writing in 1964, in November 1964, as that as that um, yeah. that presidential election is election is, is, is starting to happen. Yeah. That, that, that this is potentially, and, and we see its roots 10 or 15 years earlier in McCarthyism, that this is the paranoid style becoming a, a majority trend, a, a dominant trend, a trend that could take the White House. And I think that's why he's he's animated by it as well. Was he was he right, Nick? Do you think that it was a plausible analysis of the Goldwater movement or of the right as he saw it in the early 1960s that they were consumed by this kind of paranoia is in in your view as a historian of that period yourself quite aside from your expertise on Hofstadter and other writers is that in in your view does it have anything positive to say that helps us to explain the American right in this period? I think it's a really important question, not least because the paranoid style is so regularly trotted out by by journalists and political commentators to, to explain things that are going on in the United States. Um, I think it's important um, to kind of go back and, and think about what historians have made of Hofstadter's argument. Uh, in 2016, the historian of the American right, Leo Rebuffo, said that the paranoid style was so irrelevant and outdated that it should be buried with a stake in its heart. And I think that there are 
you know, there's a there's a generation of American historians who who have reacted against it. And why is that, Nick? Why have professional historians in recent years? I mean, so I'm making I said at the top of this episode that journalists talk about this all the time. This is definitely not I mean, the scholar you quoted may have wanted to put a stake through this argument. But it hasn't happened, right? So it's and you know, and I and I quote Hofstadter in my lectures. I don't necessarily quote him approvingly, but I, I quote him. He's it's a place to go to. But why this rejection, this wholesale rejection? Why did why should scholars want to put a stake through the heart of this idea of the paranoid style? Well, I think it revolves around a set of answers to the question of whether or not it's it's the right thing to do in intellectual terms, in scholarly terms. And to characterise the right wing or any other group in American politics and society as irrational, you know, is that a, is that a useful thing to do? And you know, this this even starts before American historians get get on board with this, with the conservative editor and writer William F. Buckley, who who takes um, Richard Hofstadter for task for analysing liberalism but diagnosing conservatism as, as if conservatism is as an irrational response to reality, but liberalism is a, is a rational one, right? So for Buckley, who's a conservative himself, this displays a bias against the right in in favour of liberalism. But for professional historians, there's a there's a really significant moment in the in the mid 1990s where historians really become interested in in the history of American conservatism, because even though Hofstadter and his peers were, were interested in these questions in the 1950s, it doesn't become a big deal in American historiography until the 1990s, um, until the I guess the aftermath of the of the of the Reagan revolution. So there's a new wave of, of, of American historical writing about the right going back and trying to explain its roots and the, the, the roots of the Reagan revolution going back to the 1920s and the 1930s as a response to the New Deal. What those historians are kind of collectively saying is that there may have been paranoid elements to the conservatism that Hofstadter was identifying, but actually this was a, this was a concerted, well-funded assault on the welfare state and on the inroads made by American liberalism in the first half of the 20th century, and that to, 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 to characterise it as irrational is to miss the fact that it's a major and fundamental trend in 20th century American history. Right. So Hofstadter clearly disagreed with it. Uh, and so to react to someone or to a movement you disagree with simply by saying basically they're loonies, they are living on the basis of complete misperceptions, they're imagining things which aren't real, um, is to completely fail to engage, obviously it's to fail to engage seriously with those arguments, but therefore it's potentially also to completely underestimate the 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 threat, the political threat, if if you're if you're in the opposing camp. Exactly, and I think there's something important about political psychology there, which is which is maybe ironic or maybe instructive, given that this is an essay that tries to deploy a concept in psychology to to understand American history. But you know, I think it's quite easy to see with hindsight that that. Um, that Hofstadter kind of falls into a trap. He assumes his liberalism is rational and that the conservatism yeah. he's trying to diagnose is, is irrational. Um, and that is something that we, that, we, that we will know in the world around us, we witness in contemporary political discourse, whether it's in the United States or in Britain uh, or in other parts of Europe, where it, it becomes easier and easier for a whole range of complicated reasons for us to imagine that those we disagree with uh, on a different point on the political spectrum are, are not acting in good faith 
are, are thinking irrationally in ways that simply cannot be engaged with on a serious intellectual level, and that that can that can feed into trends of polarization and 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 and, and political cleavages that are very difficult to to bridge. This is a weak part of his essay. He he right at the top he says in using the expression paranoid style. I'm not speaking in a clinical sense, but borrowing a clinical term for other purposes. I've neither the competence nor the desire to classify any figures of the past or present as certifiable lunatics. But in fact, that is kind of what he's doing, isn't it? (laughs) Because having said he's not qualified to use the term paranoia in a clinical sense, uh, he doesn't offer an alternative way of understanding the term, really, does he? So it's just kind of left there as a term of abuse, as he as a pejorative term, as he as he freely conceives. So it is basically saying these people are loonies. Yes, he makes the distinction that the, the individual paranoid person in, in clinical psychology believes that there are conspiracies against them as an individual, whereas the political paranoid person who suffers from the paranoid style thinks there are conspiracies not against them as individuals, but against the mass of, of citizens that make up the United States who are being um, who are being marginalised or disrespected or ignored by an, a, a small elite, whether external or internal to the United States. But yes, absolutely. You know, he it's a problem with the essay. And I think it's maybe it, it might be rooted in the kind of context that, that Hofstadter was was in, intervening in Freudianism and psychoanalysis are everywhere in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. They're, they're yeah. familiar household concepts in way in ways that... And he's a New York intellectual, so he must have had a therapist. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, and so that explanation of paranoia, I think, is a hook for him as a popular writer um, to get uh, his readers thinking, who would have been familiar with the analysis of dreams, who would have been familiar with the concept of status anxiety, which is something Hofstadter had used in his in his previous work. So this explains, I think, why he's interested in psycho- psychology and how he's he's kind of he's inseparable from a from a psychologizing urge that that, that has gripped mid century America, uh, and and he's part and parcel of that. And it's what makes the essay powerful, but it's also what makes it problematic. What I would like to suggest to you is that what we perceive in the first instance as a rise in violence among the people should be seen as being at bottom a political failure. It will lead us nowhere to inquire endlessly whether we are temperamentally as a people too violent, though this is a perfectly possible proposition to entertain, and just to ask that we repent. It may lead us somewhere to ask what areas of our system of law and government have failed to develop or change with the times to meet changing problems with enough resilience. This doesn't mean that I am asking how the government can be made more effectively repressive. I point in the opposite direction. I think instead we must ask how government, and above all federal government, because I think this is where our basic problems are going to be met and solved, can be made more effective as an agency to bring about a condition of social health that can contain mass frustrations below the point at which they explode in aggressive violence. You've made clear then that modern historians of the American right don't think there's much analytical value in the idea of a paranoid style. But I've already said that journalists and other commentators nevertheless still keep on coming back to it. And perhaps your last point about why 
this idea of paranoia seemed to capture the imagination in 1963-4 also explains why it does today, because what you just said there about this connection between the individual and broad social movements, and everybody's a cod psychologist still, aren't they, in today, in the 21st century, just as they may have been in New York, Manhattan, Manhattan circles in the 1960s. Um, but let's see if we can, you know, I, I want to see if I can sort of make a a defense of the of the value of of Hofstadter's essay unfashionable as it may be within the academy to do so because isn't he fundamentally on to something and i suppose this is where you know like like Hofstadter i'm interested in this podcast is very interested in what makes america america and the idea of american exceptionalism you know neither i nor as it were this this podcast if i can personify the podcast uh, are necessarily saying that the United States is an exceptional country. But what we are constantly coming back to in all of these discussions I have in, the, in this podcast is that so many people believe it to be so, and that itself becomes historically important. And Hofstadter was, perhaps the reason I read him and go back to him, Hofstadter was very preoccupied with this idea of American political culture, what makes America America, this notion of a creed, this idea of there being a story with a beginning and a destination. And so given the fact that those ideas are themselves historical realities, so the fact that people believe in all those things matters, then to identify, as he's doing, groups and individuals who want to, who are deeply dissatisfied with the status quo, but who can only articulate their frustration and anger with the status quo, not by rejecting the whole premise of the nation, not by saying there's something fundamentally wrong with the United States and we need to scrap it and start again, but to say that the people running the ship are deceiving us. They say that they are American patriots and believe in the Constitution and the Founding Fathers, but really they are sinister, no good communists or Catholics or whatever it might be. Isn't Hofstadter getting at something quite true there? I think that's a very powerful way of thinking about what we might keep um, from Richard Hofstadter's interpretation of the paranoid style, as as, as well as, as as what we might reject from it, and I think you know, I would I would just add two things that overlap with that. The first would be that Richard Hofstadter is a historian who's really really interested in ideas and the role that ideas can play in history. And one of those ideas, Adam, you're absolutely right, is you know what what makes America America? How is how is America? Um, uh, somehow, if not exceptional, then, then, then different. What is distinct about its ideological traditions, its political traditions? And so if we, if we, if we use Hofstadter's essay to understand and to recognise that conspiratorial ideas have had a central place in various forms of American political discourse and rhetoric that have proved to have political significance, and it may be that that political significance is, is rooted not in irrationality, but in a whole range of other forces. That doesn't mean that, that a, set of, a set of conspiratorial and potentially irrational political ideas have been mobilised on, on its behalf. And so, you know, thinking about the various ways in which power manifests itself, which is what every historian should be doing, uh, recognises that, that, that so-called paranoid ideas can actually be quite powerful. I think the other thing that, that Hofstadter is, is, is keen to articulate in this essay that we may also take on board is the fact that this is cyclical. 
Uh, and I think I get this when I talk to students a lot about American history and I you know, t- teach about contemporary American politics and history. We, we cotton on a lot to the idea of the culture wars. And it's very easy for British students to look across the Atlantic and think, um, well, American politics is, is irrational. It's crazy. There are, there are all of these um, extreme people, especially on the right, who are not good actors, who are not intellectually honest. But I think it's important that we recognise that that is not the only uh, American political tradition. And Hofstadter's thinking gets us thinking about this being cyclical, right? He doesn't explain very well what it is that creates the cycles, <laughs> but he says this isn't, mm. this isn't the only or this isn't a fundamentally American strain of political thinking. It's one form of American political thinking that needs to be robustly yeah. counteracted. That's so interesting. That's absolutely true. I hadn't quite thought about it like that, but you're right. That is what he's saying. He's not saying the paranoid style is American politics. He's saying that there's something about American political culture which has acted as a sort of petri dish for this kind of political thinking, this style. But at the same, by the same token, as you're implying, he's also marginalising it and he's emphasising it not only it's relatively marginal character but that it's only at in phases bubble to the surface in a very strong and visible way that comes back to this question of Hofstadter as a so-called consensus historian though doesn't it really because he's then simply normalizing the liberal steady rational tradition in which he obviously identifies himself and saying that these bouts of paranoia are insofar as they are distinctively American they're not what makes up America. They're an unfortunate waste product of the American political well, tradition. And that's exactly right. And, um, you know, there I think it's useful to go back to um, the American political tradition, the book he wrote in 1948, which was his best, his best-selling work, which is a, a, set of, a set of essays about major figures in the American political tradition. The subtitle of the book is And the Men Who Made It. And, you know, the overarching argument of that book is that politicians... Um, from the founding fathers through Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln up to Hoover and, and Roosevelt in the 1930s, all, in spite of their party political differences, in spite of their disagreements on particular issues, in Hofstadter's words, accepted the economic virtues of capitalist culture as necessary qualities of man and thus fundamentally agreed about more than they disagreed with, right? When Hofstadter writes those words in 1948, he's very critical of that consensus, of that, yes. of that, of that liberal tradition, if we, if we kind of expand the defini- definition of liberal to be as elastic as it, as it can be. But by the 1960s, when he's writing, and he's writing in the context of the Goldwater nomination for the presidency and the emergence of this new right, I think he's actually much more comfortable with the idea that American politics can and should be characterised yeah. by that liberal consensus, because he sees it as being much more preferable to um, the extremes of, of, of left and right. And, and you know, the, the, the 1964 election, when Barry Goldwater's right wing conservatism is very firmly defeated in a landslide by Lyndon Johnson, um, Hofstadter's biographer Richard Brown says that was probably the happiest Hofstadter had ever been at the outcome of the presidential election in the United States during his political life. Now, we know that the Goldwater movement was the beginning of something, but I think in 64, Hofstadter might have thought it was the end of something. And that speaks to his, that speaks to his politics and his mindset and his sense of American political yes. development, I think. So insofar as for most people, political judgments are always, are always relative, in 1948, he could afford to be highly critical of even of 
uh, well, of, of Harry Truman, who was president at the time, who he thought was a big disappointment compared to FDR, and he could be critical of Abraham Lincoln. Um, but in but by the early 1960s, you know, you have to make different judgments about what's really important and what isn't. And if the choice is, you know, Abraham Lincoln and FDR on the one hand, or Gold and versus Goldwater on the other, you know, he knows where. He knows where his allegiances lie. That's that's exactly right. I think the, maybe the mistake he was making in that moment was to see Goldwater as fundamentally ex- exceptional from the Republican norm, the Republican Party norm that had been developing in the aftermath of the of the New Deal. Um, you know, because he sees Goldwater as fundamentally different to any Republican Party politician who'd come before him. But I think new historians of American conservatism would say, well, wait a minute, Richard Nixon was vice president for eight years under Eisenhower. He narrowly um, uh, missed out on, on, on being elected president in 1960 when he was beaten by John F. Kennedy. Nixon was a politician who was far more canny and, 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 and a different politician to, to Goldwater, but he was, he was brought to power by virulent anti-communism um, of, a, of a type that, that may have made him a better fit for the, for the paranoid style than, than Hofstadter would have wanted to give him credit for. I mean, for. Nixon really was paranoid. I mean, Nixon had lists of his, of his enemies, didn't he? I mean, he was constantly worrying that people were out yeah, to get it, him. Perhaps he was right, though. Perhaps he was right. Perhaps he wasn't paranoid. Perhaps he was just <laughs> correct. But I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it seems a perfect description of, of, of Nixon, much less so of Goldwater. In fact. Exactly. And I think, you know, that would be, again, where historians of American conservatism would come in and say, look, we need to, we need to see this as a, as a longer, deeper tradition that is actually rooted not purely in the irrational kind of utterances of people who are trying to justify their conservatives, but in a much more concerted yeah. political campaign to defeat the New Deal, to fe- defeat the Democratic Party and to bring a new form of conservatism into power in the United States, which is, of course, what happens from the 1980s onwards. Just to bring us finally back to the present day, Nick, if you do a Google search for paranoid style and look at recent news reports over the last two or three years, you'll see that some of the journalists and commentators who've cited it have not only said, aha, this diagnosis from the 1960s explains the present, but that it's more relevant today than it has ever been before because of social media, because of the fragmentation of our understanding of American society's understanding of what is truth. So that now the argument goes, it's far easier to spread conspiratorial ideas to live in alternative fact worlds. Is there some truth in that? May, might there be a case of saying whatever the value of Hofstadter's argument for historians of conservatism and the, of the right wing in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, perhaps he has even more to say to us today in this new world? I think that's right. We're never going to escape um journalists and political pundits use of the of the paranoid style as a framing device for articles i don't think um, but that doesn't mean that it's that it's not useful and and if we were if we were thinking about whether or not there is a paranoid style in the united states today whether it's a useful um whether it's a useful narrative and an analytical hook I, I think i'd answer a kind of a cautious yes when we look at the rise of of, of trumpism its denial of reality its assumption of a great conspiracy of wokeness that is in universities, is in schools, is in the wider culture. 
its appeal to a range of conspiracy theories about political opponents, both inside and outside the, the GOP, when we think that, that you know, Ted Cruz has been the vic- victim of politicised conspiracy theories just as much as Hillary Clinton and, and Joe Biden and his family. But I think we should use it cautiously. We should use it, I would argue, with a sense of who the man who devised it was, what he was good at, what his blind spots were. And we should remember that, that just because a, an idea seems paranoid doesn't mean that someone isn't using it to further a very concrete political agenda that we should be taking seriously. Nick, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was talking to Nick Witham of University College London, whose new book, Popularising the Past, I highly recommend. Richard Hofstadter died in 1970, aged only 54, so he never saw the rise of anti-vaxxers or QAnon or RFK Jr.'s quixotic rise to political prominence in 2023. He never saw the descent of American politics into today's extreme polarisation, fuelled by real hatred and mutual incomprehension. Sixty years after his lecture, his core claim that there's something about American politics that feeds paranoia seems more plausible than ever, at least to me. It's little wonder that the paranoid style is continually invoked by commentators and journalists alike. The term paranoia, though, as Hofstadter admitted, is unavoidably pejorative. We are all sufferers from history, Hofstadter wrote, but the paranoid is a double sufferer since he is afflicted not only by the real world with the rest of us, but by his fantasies as well. This is a typical Hofstadter zinger, but it's also limited as analysis. It essentially dismisses whole sections of the population as nutters, but doesn't explain why they're nutters. The part of Hofstadter's 1963 lecture that's least remembered is also the part that I think is most useful. The idea of a political style. That there's a way of talking about betrayal, of sinister forces, of corruption, in an identifiable recurring pattern across the generations. It's an enduring question, isn't it, in American politics. If the United States is the last best hope of Earth, yet you don't feel like you're getting your fair share... Who's to blame? You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI at Oxford University. Our producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this episode, there are nearly 50 others for you to download. Please like us and recommend us to your friends. Goodbye. Goodbye.